And welcome to the Stephen King cast. Welcome to the Stephen King cast. One man's musings. One man's musings. On the works of Stephen King. And the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And as I've said before, I really have to change that up. It just comes so naturally at this point. But hey, what are you going to do? Stick with what you know, right? Okay, guys. So... If you listened to my last episode of my review of In the Tall Grass, you know, I sort of said goodbye to 2019 and wished everyone a, uh, you know, happy 2020. Um, But of course, uh, you know, just when I think that I have put a stamp, um, it turns out, or a period, it turns out that that period um, becomes an ellipsis, as I am back again, uh, not to review anything new. But looking back at the fact that we're, we're going to close out a decade and we're going to start a fresh decade, I think that it's important to, to look at the decade as it meant for Stephen King. And I'm going to give some thoughts on what a decade it was. So I, you're going to see, I'm sure that you already have, if you're listening to this podcast, it probably means that you traffic and entertainment sites um, and other entertainment podcasts so i'm sure that you're going to see a ton of best television shows of the decade best movies of the decade best fictional characters of the decade best uh singular episodes of the decade uh, blah 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 what have you so um i'm going to be doing something similar i'm going to be giving the best uh stephen king properties of the decade and this, I just, the caveat here is I can't stand lists. I don't really like top 10 lists. I did some top 10 lists after I completed the, the, the Stephen King cast's initial uh, mission statement, which was to go through each of his books in the chronological order of publication and, you know, really explore the, the nuances and the themes and, and how those themes and uh, everything within the works uh, progressed and evolved as he made his way through the years. And once I finished that, I did top 10 lists. You know, it's one of those things that if I was going to do it again, I'm sure that the top 10 lists would look different than they did when I recorded them. Top 10 lists, people upset a lot of the time. Uh, and, you know, I found myself doing it when I did my top 10 Stephen King characters and Stephen King moments. You, you, you really need to do a really good top 10 list. You have to set a, a hard criteria. And if I was doing the Stephen King cast again, or if I had more time, I would have a rubric that I would follow and operate so that it, I, I, so it really helps eliminate a lot of the subjectivity. And if I had more time, I would do that for this top 10 list. So the thing with top 10 lists or any sort of lists, top 50 lists, top 100 lists, is that when not done well, it fluctuates and it varies and it, it flip-flops between best and favorite. Best and favorite. What's the best? What's the favorite? And so what you're going to get here is you're going to get what I consider to be the best 
Um, and I'll, I'll talk about, you know, if it was my favorite listing, you know, how it might look. But I, I just felt that um, in this moment, as we're closing out the 2010s, I want to try to be as objective as possible and look at things globally rather than intimately and really show what the best contributions from King or adapted from King's works are the best. Which ones are the best? What impacts did they have? Why they are the best? Uh, so that's what this is gonna this what this this episode is going to be, um, and I'm gonna follow it up when everything is said and done. There's a, a a listener email that I want to read that I think that everyone should stick around for. So uh, to begin to get into this, let's look at what the the Stephen King contributions were beginning with 2010. So in 2010, uh, he released Full Dark, No Stars, a collection of four novellas. Um, and he followed it up in uh, 2011 with 112263. Also in 2011, he gave us The Dark Tower, The Wind Through the Keyhole, an unexpected entry in the Dark Tower saga. We didn't get any Stephen King until 2013. Um, and at that point, he gave us two um, two little surprises, uh, Joyland and then Dr. Sleep. Those were in 2013. Then in 2014, we were treated to revival and maybe not the word, I wouldn't really use the word treated, but then we got, uh, Mr. Mercedes. And then in 2015, uh, we again got two entries. We got the Bazaar of Bad Dreams, his latest collection, of short stories followed by the uh, sequel to Mr. Mercedes Finders Keepers and then in 2016 he concluded the Bill Hodges Mercedes trilogy with End of Watch in 2017 we saw a collaboration between uh, Stephen King and uh, his son Owen with Sleeping Beauties in 2018 we got first The Outsider and then uh, the novella, uh, or very, very small book, short book, uh, Elevation. And lastly, in 2019, as we close out the year, we, uh, were privy to the Institute. Everything here I have reviewed on the Stephen King cast. So for, uh, deep, um, examinations on each of these books, head into, um, my, uh, my, my feed um, and uh, get all of my thoughts on each and every one of those. Um, I just want to note that I did not include um, In the Tall Grass or Throttle, which were co-authored uh, by Joe Hill. I, I, and I don't know why I, I didn't, um, but I just, I just wanted to mention those. As, I, mean, I, I mean, I listed Sleeping Beauties, and that's a collaboration, so I guess I don't know why I didn't include In the Tall Grass or Throttle, but hey, well, whatever. Um, Okay, but that's not it. That I also am going to be including the adaptations from the works of Stephen King. So beginning in 2010 and running until 2015, uh, there was Haven, which was, from what I understand, it began as a loose, loose adaptation of The Colorado Kid, but then sort of morphed into a proto-Castle Rock. Uh, and then 2011... There was the A&E adaptation of Bag of Bones. And then 2013, we, 13, we had the Kimberly Pierce uh, 
uh, Chloe Grace Moretz starring uh, remake of Carrie. And then oof, in 2013 through 2015, we had the unfortunate adaptation of Under the Dome. In 2014, uh, there was the adaptation of A Good Marriage. Um, also in 2014, we saw another adaptation of a Full Dark No Stars uh, story, Big Driver. In 2014, we also got uh, the adaptation of Grandma, uh, starring Coral from The Walking Dead, entitled Mercy. And that was a treat to watch. And actually, as strange as it sounds, Mercy is one of the reasons uh, why I wanted to do the Stephen King cast. Not because it inspired me, um, and I hadn't even seen it at that point, but I had been thinking about doing a Stephen King-inspired podcast, and as I was perusing the aisles of Best Buy, I came across Mercy and uh, saw all of the contributors on it, and I saw, uh, you know, it was behind some producers, I believe, of Paranormal Activity and starring, you know, Coral from The Walking Dead, and all these names were splashed all over this really shitty movie, <laughs> but... Uh, the only time Stephen King's name appeared was really in the credits on the bottom. And I thought how awful it was that the King of Horror was reduced to just a footnote on a crappy version of his own movie, um, and it wasn't a selling point. Well, I'm glad, I'm very glad that as we conclude this decade, that he has reestablished himself as the King of Horror, almost better than ever, um... But I said that that really stuck with me, and that was kind of one of the contributing factors for me to, to, to just really pull the trigger and buy the microphone and, and play around with GarageBand and, and get this thing up and running. So thank you, uh, Bad Movie. Uh, you, you helped get this, this whole enterprise up and running. Then in 2016, we got Hulu's 11-22-63. And also in 2016, we got the John Cusack starring Cell. In 2017, we got Spike TV's The Mist. And in 2017, we got The Dark Tower. Uh, in 2017, and still running, we got uh, Mr. Mercedes, starring Brendan Gleeson, uh, created and run by David E. Kelly and Jack Bender. Uh, and I kick myself every day for, for not uh, watching the second season. In 2017, uh, this is a big one, we received It Chapter One, which was a game changer all around. In 2017, also for different reasons, we got uh, another game changer, with Gerald's Game on Netflix, and uh, 2017, the fall of 2017, continued to be an incredibly potent time period in the span of like a month and a half. We got Mr. Mercedes, It, Gerald's Game, and 1922, um, also on Castle Rock. And then in 2018, that was the year of uh, Castle Rock on Hulu. And then in 2019, uh, this was also a big year for Stephen King as we got the remake to Pet Cemetery in April. We got It Chapter 2 uh, in September. We got Doctor Sleep 
in November, um, and then we got Creep Show, which has been running. Uh, I think it just concluded a little while ago on Shutter. So, guys, that's that's a lot. That is um, fourteen. Uh, that's fourteen texts, um, and that is uh, twenty adaptations. So this was a a very rich decade for Stephen King. And, you know, I, I think that as we started to get into the, the, second, uh, the, the second half of this decade, the, the world reacquainted itself with Stephen King. And I think that one of the, the big pushes there was the, the, the creation of the, the It movie, the, the announcement of it, the... Um, the discussion around the original ABC miniseries of it, uh, the the costume design of Pennywise, Entertainment Weekly's coverage of it by Anthony Bresnikan, now working for Vanity Fair, uh, it, it just really relit the the fires of who Stephen King was and what Stephen King means to all of us and um, really placed him back in the spotlight where he deserves to be. What I'm going to do now, now that I've talked about, now that I've, I've set up the, uh, just the, the, the whole list of, of things to choose from, I'm going to give you the top 10 Stephen King texts and adaptations of the 2010s. Now, I just, as I said before, that these are a ranking of what I think his best and most influential works are. This is not a list of my favorites. This is a loose ranking. I'm not looking at hard numbers. I'm not looking at book sales. I'm not looking at box office returns. I'm not looking at, at social media buzz. Um, these are, 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 are qualitative rankings that are based on the fulfillment of the potential of the concepts that he presents um, within the story the execution of the author's intent, and the societal impact of the story, um, and my prognostication of future impact um, that we might not have seen yet. What this is not is just the list of the things that I liked the most. Okay, so number 10. Number 10. And this one shocks me that it makes my top 10, okay? And I want to differentiate here that number 10 is the show not the book, Mr. Mercedes. The level of quality that goes into each episode is top notch. David E. Kelly is a decades, uh, decades running showrunner who has had hit after hit after hit, um, and he is he much like Stephen King is is hitting a new stride. Um, over the last couple of years, he is show running Mr. Mercedes. Uh, he's racked up some Emmys with uh, Big Little Eyes over on HBO. There is a crispness and a cleanliness to the show. There is just a, a tightness to the stories and the delivery. The characters pop. Um, there's a reality to the world, but it's stylized just enough where it really hooks you in, but not stylized to the point where it is um, unrecognizable um, or uh, or just too much. Um, 
And to center the show, you have Brendan Gleeson, who is able to convey the, the baggage and the heaviness and the weariness and the desperation and the obsessiveness and the melancholy of Bill Hodges in a way where personally speaking, I did not find the, uh, the book version to, to have that, that level of nuance. Uh, all in all, I have found Mr. Mercedes to be a incredible treat, a wonderful surprise. And I shouldn't be surprised because there is good within the content of the story. Um, I just don't think that it, it was executed very well in, in the book form. And I think that the books got better. Finders Keepers is better than Mr. Mercedes and End of Watch is um, better than Mr. Mercedes as well. Going through all of uh, all of the lists of or just the, the list of Stephen King's works in the 2010s to and I started putting, you know, the, this order together. I, 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 I it really did shock me because my, my level of immediate disdain for Mr. Mercedes, um, it, it was hard for me to get through the book. So for me to um, have such a, a deep appreciation for the quality within the show and how it has I've become a staunch supporter of this property, an intellectual property. Um, you know, I'm, I almost defend the book now, uh, which which really goes a long way to show just what what level of talent that uh, Bender and uh, David E. Kelly and all of the actors within are are operating on. Which again shouldn't be a surprise, um, but it surprised me based on the fact that it it was it coming off of. Uh, a book that I, I would consider to be one of Stephen King's worst. But I'm not gonna be doing a worst list because what's that's, just it's not a good look. So I'm not doing a worst list. But um, but yeah, Mr. Mercedes the show is something that does not get a lot of love. It doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, part of it is it's just the distribution of of um, of like AT and T or what whatever it is where wherever it is like it it should be on HBO. That I mean it should be. It's it, it has the, the prestige look of an HBO show. It should be on HBO. Um, and I think that people that, just from what I've seen of The Outsider so far, if if you like The Outsider, I would, not that any of us, I, I don't know, we haven't seen any of it yet, but I imagine it's going to be good. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say judge a book by its cover, but I'm definitely judging a book by the, the story by the trailers here. Um, but yeah, it, it, it looks... Like a very uh, looks like a mirror to uh, to Mr. Mercedes. So if if you are listening to this in the future and you like the outsider and you want more similar of something of similar nature, do yourself a favor and check out Mr. Mercedes because not only is it um, similar in content, but it might share uh, a character. Number nine is also an adaptation, and that is, it's an adaptation that I didn't really like, uh, but I believe it is um, an important contribution to, to our culture. Um, it wrapped everything up, and it did give us um, at least, no, it gave us two two incredibly strong performances um 
and it is going to allow for uh, a different edit that I think once complete could allow a lot of us who did not like it that much to revisit the 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 good within and i'm speaking of it chapter two now i am surprised again that this made the list but again this is not my list of favorites this is the list of what i think are the best this made a lot of money at the box office this was something that was incredibly anticipated um the 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 the, the second the trailer for the first it in 2017 came out um i i began wondering what it chapter two and at that point we didn't know it was gonna be called chapter two but the second part would be because we knew it was going to focus on the adults so then all the speculation began about who was going to be the adults and because the first one was such a hit they could have gotten anybody and they fan casted you know they got uh, Jessica Chastain as Bev. They got Bill Hader as Richie, and that did not disappoint. That probably the casting of Bill Hader as Richie is probably one of the greatest castings for a Stephen King property, um, as he just got um, Richie uh, Trashmouth Tozier uh, in a way that was just so authentic, but true to this interpretation of. Uh, of of this this version of the story we got james mcavoy whose talents were wasted um and of course we got uh bill skarsgård to close out his iconic and career defining turn as pennywise the dancing clown in a way where he took that title from tim curry which was no small feat so I didn't like the movie. You can listen to all my thoughts on the movie. Um, I didn't really like it, but like I said, it allows for the Andy Muschietti to re-edit all of these scenes to make one long super movie um, that, that, that might play to the strengths that exist within it, chapter two, as they don't currently exist in the, in, in the present form. There was just a lot of buzz around this movie. There was a lot of anticipation for it. I walked away being very disappointed. Um, I think it, 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 it did waste its talent, but uh, there was a lot of good within it. And the level of anticipation for this movie, not by me, by, though I was very uh, anticipatory, but just of general audiences, just again reinforced the chokehold that when Stephen King is on fire, that name means something to everybody. And that is important to me. And that's important to this podcast. It's important to everyone listening to this podcast. It's important to uh, our pop culture that even something that isn't as good as its predecessor, the way that it chapter one was, the anticipation for its sequel, uh, you know, it was was palpable across the board for people that have read the book, that hadn't read the book, that only saw the uh, twenty seventeen movie, that uh, you know grew up with the the images of the nineteen ninety ABC TV miniseries, um, and 
you know, it closed out a two-part story that defined horror for an entire generation. So, though I have many issues with this movie, there's no denying the importance of this movie, and I felt that it needed to be included in this top ten list. And that brings us to number eight, uh, which is uh, also an adaptation, uh, which all, it might make you think that it's like a diss on, on Stephen King, that he wasn't pumping out quality work, um, which uh, could not be further from the truth. Some of the entries later, um, further up on this list, probably would rank in the, the, the top ten of uh, the entirety of his works, if not the top five. Um, but there, there was definitely the, the, the level, the, the, the quality of adaptations that we received this decade um, is outstanding. And so at number eight, I believe that Mike Flanagan's Gerald's Game uh, definitely should, should make the list. Um uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, a, he not only filmed an unfilmable movie, he created one of the best Stephen King adaptations of all time. And in doing so, cemented himself as possibly the greatest Stephen King adapter of all time. Now, I know... I know right now the Frank Darabont Frank Darabont heads are uh, probably screaming at me, and rightfully so. That's why I said possibly, um, because I would say currently, um, when you when you have done uh, the Shawshank Redemption, the Green Mile, and the Mist so successfully that you 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 have staked your claim as being the greatest adapter of Stephen King works, truly. But Mike Flanagan is now two for two. Uh, Frank Darabont is three for three. And if Mike Flanagan continues this streak, he there is an understanding that he gets of the voice of Stephen King, the specific balance between character and horror that many people that adapt the works of Stephen King fail to, to find that exact right ratio, which is why some Stephen King uh, ad adaptations just feel so off or just not right in the hands of uh, Mike Flanagan because of his own sensibilities as a storyteller, as an accomplished and um, gifted writer slash director, his pathos matches very well with the, the the philosophies and the sensibilities of Stephen King. So though Stephen King did not write The Haunting of Hill House, and though it, it doesn't fully resemble Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, uh, The Haunting of Hill House very much feels a part of Stephen King's world. And that is because of how similar in some ways Flanagan's sensibilities are with Stephen King's. So, I when when I first saw Hush, I said I had tweeted out. I said there, there's no need for anyone to ever adapt Gerald's Game because we we got the best version of what that can be. And then Mike Flanagan went 
and made Gerald's Game after that. And I said, oh my God, okay, I didn't know that this could be made into a movie. And I didn't know that it could be made in such a way where there was beauty and there was horror. And I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. And when he decided to turn on the horror elements, um, it was truly terrifying. Um, the, the the giant from Twin Peaks, uh, he, he legitimately was scary um, in this movie. Um, and you really, um, felt Jessie's plight and the, the, the horror that, that, that she had suffered at the hands of her father and it was awful. And there was a, a, a beauty in the, in the imagery that was presented. I did critique the, the conclusion, like the, the, the last shot, um, of the of the um, movie, but now that I understand Mike Flanagan better than I did when I first watched it, I would probably reevaluate my original critique of that. Um, and all in all, I, I I just feel that this is such a bold and confident forward step into the, the the world of Stephen King where he is staking his claim and saying this is something that I can do and give me the reins and I will take it from here um and from here on out I want him to be the primary Stephen King adapter I want him to adapt um as I've stated in every episode <laughs> since Dr. Sleep has come out I want him to adapt Duma Key more than anything else because um, he would be great at at that i want him to adapt more and more works of of stephen king because he would be able to really spread the word and the gospel of stephen king uh in wonderful wonderful ways the performances uh in in the movie are great um the, the the direction is exquisite like I said the, the cinematography um, is is great and he just unabashedly declares his love for Stephen King with the the, the coolest subtlest boldest uh, dark tower reference ever committed to film until dr sleep Um Oh, it, the movie's great. It's a great movie, and it, it definitely deserves to be in the top 10 list. Okay, so in number seven, we finally get our first Stephen King text of the, the 2010s. And um, again, this is why top 10 lists are should, should never really be taken that seriously, because I feel as though um, in a year or two, this entry might actually be higher Um and I think that once the uh, the miniseries or the series, whatever we're going to call it, comes out, it actually might bump this up. It might actually shine a light on a lot of the, the, the themes that maybe I, I missed the first time around um, or, or just shine a light on the things that work that I did catch um, would make me appreciate them even in, in more detail. Uh, but that's that's the thing with, with criticism and that's the thing with appreciation um and that's the thing with the things that you like a everything grows we're in constant growth and we're in constant change uh so nothing should stay static for for very long but i would imagine that the outsider actually might um move up from number seven to a higher ranking um 
because it's great. The Outsider is great. And I know that it received a lot of critics uh, because of the abrupt shifts in the second half um, right in the middle of, of the book and the genre just completely changes. I think it's by design. I think that it works in incredibly well. And I think that the criticism that some people have, it comes from a place of really enjoying the crime thriller element of the first half of the book because it is done so well. It is the best... It, you know, Stephen King, you know, really started to try his hand at the crime thriller. His 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 more recent phase of crime thrillers, I would say, with a good marriage, um, and there's some template there of um, Mr. Mercedes within uh, a good marriage, and then really with Mr. Mercedes, he he staked his claim. I haven't read um, Colorado Kid, but I I. I think that I would need to include Colorado Kid in there as well. But I, I I can definitely see that where he hands off a good marriage to Mr. Mercedes and then from the Mr. Mercedes trilogy in multiple ways, uh, he hands it off to The Outsider. But I think that The Outsider, the first half, is the best actualization of the crime thriller um, done at the hands of Stephen King. It is just so juicy and it's such a good mystery. And for me... I like the supernatural element. Um, I like where it goes. But on top of just liking it, I think that it's handled very, very well um, because it is still... Uh, the perspective is still through the eyes of criminologists and um, police and um, trying to look at the facts and you know, logic unraveling under this particular view. And it really shows the horror of it all when you have someone that, and people that have dedicated their lives to the order of law and order and building cases on facts and logic, the, the complete inability to do so when logic is, is flying in your face and giving you the, the middle finger. There is a, a true existential horror there, and I think that, that he, he minds it very, very well. Uh, and I, I think that this novel teed, teed it up for an incredible adaptation, which will then cement the novel itself um, as an all-time great of Stephen King. It's funny how these things work in tandem, how adaptations... Um, you know, have a conversation with the original text, um, you know, and I think that The Outsider is about to do that with the the, the novel. Um, and I think that much in the way Dr. Sleep, the, the adaptation by Mike Flanagan allowed for a revisitation and a re-examination of the the book Dr. Sleep and a reappreciation. I think that the HBO adaptation of The Outsider will cause people who might not might not have liked uh, the the second half of The Outsider to just re-examine it. Um, in my review of The Outsider, I was very positive i still am positive and i think that it is a tight tight novel um as a as a horror novel as a crime novel 
you know, the thing that I think that, and maybe I have done a poor job at this as a podcast host, examining the works of Stephen King. Um, but I, I think that what a lot of people have struggled with in terms of Stephen King in the last uh, couple decades is his interpretation of what horror is. Um, it has become more existential. It has become, I don't want to say softer, but that that initial wave of Stephen King books that became instant classics that then imparted itself upon our pop culture, which in some ways we all grew up with and then became a part of our collective memories. I mean, they established themselves as legends and icons because we've been living with them for generations, but they also spoke to a different time period and came from someone at a different point in his life. And the stories that he is writing now are coming from a, a life that has lived longer than the author that when he was writing Christine and Salem's Lot and The Shining um, and It, and he is doing something different. And different is not necessarily something bad. And so when he does something that is existential and mysterious without... The, the the relentlessness, it, it's not necessarily bad. It's just different because it's done well. The Outsider, check it out. Okay, Full Dark No Stars is number six. Full Dark No Stars is a collection that I just don't like. Okay, so going back to objectivity versus subjectivity, I don't like Full Dark No Stars. Full Dark No Stars makes me feel bad about my life. Full Dark No Stars makes me feel bad about humanity. Uh, longtime listeners of the show will know that I believe that Stephen King is a very optimistic, hopeful writer that believes in humanity, that believes that humanity is at its best when it is working together in tandem. He has its own term for that. It's called Katet. And this is the antithesis of that belief. This is Stephen King operating at his bleakest, at his darkest. I mean, the, the title of the goddamn collection is Full Dark No Stars. Um, it includes uh, some of the most unrelenting, punishing stories. We have um, A Good Marriage. We have Big Driver we have uh, fair extension, and I'm 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 missing one um, that I can't quite remember right now. Uh, 1922. They're all horrible, horrible stories with horrible people, um, but they are done incredibly well. And the reason why they're as bad as they are is because on some level there's an element of truth. So I'm thinking a lot of a good marriage, and it is. Stephen King operating at his best where he takes a what if question and he examines and he just really spends his time examining the possibilities of that what if question. So he takes the what if you're married to a serial killer and he plays it out to the logical conclusion. But through that examination, he really takes a look at the the innermost secrets that everybody has within a marriage. And by all accounts, Stephen King has had a decades-spanning healthy marriage that has survived tragedy, um, or not, not maybe tragedy isn't the right word, but I mean, I mean, I don't know of them personally, only publicly, but Stephen King famously was an addict and 
um, overcame that. He oh, tragedy in, in the sense that he almost lost his life with the the, the July uh, June nineteenth nineteen ninety nine uh, van accident. So th- there has been it has weathered the storms of of life. Um, but through it all, from what we have seen from dedications um, of each other and from the the writings of their children, it has been a loving marriage. And anyone that takes a, the, the Stephen King tour in Bangor by a stew, you'll see the contributions that this family has had on Bangor. So by all accounts, from the outsider's perspective, it appears as though... Um, Stephen King and, and, and Tabitha King have had a very loving marriage. Um, but there's an authenticity in, in a good marriage about just secrets. And, and there is a passage about hanging out with other people and all the questions that they ask, but they never ask, how is your marriage? Um, and that's where horror comes from. Horror comes from something that's recognizable in your reality. And a good marriage is a very dark song in the Stephen King symphony, but it's one that is written from a place of truth. Um, and it's potent, as is Fair Extension, which is a story about jealousy and just what jealousy does and the things that you yearn for in your life and the people that you will trample on on the way to get there and how you can live a life of living alongside somebody and living with people and building this community and 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 a family of friends um but to know that they're so disposable over your own greed and your own interests, no matter what, and that the the life that you have built for yourself is just really built on lies. Like there, there is, it is written from a place like of of such authenticity in its way, and of course, that's what makes Stephen King Stephen King. With with Big Driver, I, I the inclusion of Big Driver, you know, I, I it's a splatter. Splatterhouse, Grindhouse, uh, just really, it's a, just a revenge story. Um, and you really root for the, the main character to get her revenge. Um, it's a hard, it's a hard look. Um, and then 1922 is a deeply psychological um, examination of one man's breakdown and... Uh, you know, how his life completely shatters after a, 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 a completely horrific act. These not these stories are so bad in terms of just being bleak. You know, they're incredibly well-written, but they are, oh, like you need to scrub your soul with a steel wool brush when you are done with full dark no stars. Um, like I said, I do not like these stories, <laughs> you know, much in the way that I do not like... Um, Requiem for a Dream, the movie. I never want to watch that movie again. I never want to see that. I don't want to go 10 feet near that movie. But I can't say that it isn't an incredible film because it is the perfect execution of the uh, creator's intent. And similarly, Full Dark No Stars 
is unrelenting, it is dark, it is depressing, it is bleak, it is pessimistic, it showcases the worst elements of us, who we are as people, but it is incredibly well done. It is a um, master class of an author working at the height of his powers. And similarly, number five, um, and this might surprise a lot of people, but I'm going to stump for this um, every chance I get, and that's Revival. And maybe there is a little bit of subjectivity because I am proud of myself that I... This was the first publication of a new Stephen King work um, as I had started the, the Stephen King cast. So I had gotten uh, a number of episodes under my belt, but they were all works that I had read and reread prior to that and grown up alongside with. And there was just the, the, the pop culture that I grew up with. Um, you know, w w I was just immersed in the world of Stephen King. Um, Revival was the first new work by Stephen King since I had started the Stephen King cast. And I uh, am proud of myself for being able to review that with the critical lens um, without the baggage of the past. Um, and even though it is a quieter novel, it is a more haunting novel, um, it is, again, sort of piggybacking on what I just said about Full Dark No Stars. This is one of the most bleakest things that Stephen King has ever written. And despite the fact that the threats are far more amorphous and existential, they are also the most horrific depictions of horror that Stephen King has ever given us. He shows us what death is like, um, what on the, on the other side of the door exists for us, what waits for us, and it is the most Lovecraftian, alien, bleak, dark, terrifying, scary soul-shredding, helpless future for all of us. Um, it's weird. Um, you know, and, and because Stephen King did die for a second uh, with, with the, uh, the, the, the van, I hope that there, is, that there is no authenticity here. I hope that there is no truth. I hope that there is no glimpse of what he saw, and this is his way to work through it. I do not want to be a part of an alien ant creature. I do not want to be the slave. I don't want my soul to be the slave of these ant masters as they whip me in this netherworld for all of eternity. It's horrifying. And it is presented to us in a way that is unremarkably that is remarkably un-Stephen King-like in so many ways. Now, I was reading this as I was reading Pet Cemetery. The uh serendipity of reading these two novels at the same time really illuminated the the life that this man has lived and the viewpoints that he is able to express to us through the different phases of his career based on where he is in life and the as i stated before the the the, the view of death that is presented to us in 
Pet Cemetery is through the eyes of someone in his early 30s where life um, is so full and in bloom and the, the, the future has so much potential and that's where the horror comes from. That, the, the fact that that future is being eliminated. Um, Revival gives us a different look and the look is of death at various stages through one's life um, through the, the, the preacher at the beginning of the novel, how he, like Lewis Creed, just everything is ripped away from him. But by the time that we get to the end, there's just such a an inevitability to all of it. Um, and there's a, a, a resigned weariness to, to death and to the, the futility of life um, that is that is soul crushing in a way that is just that is not existent within pet cemetery and there is a potency there there's a power there and the the imagery that he crafts with death with the 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 ants is very upsetting you know the word is upsetting i really hope that there's no truth to that um but I, I, I think that I, I don't know what's going on with the, the Josh Boone adaptation. Um, I hope that it's still in play. I do want to see what this looks like. I want Mike Flanagan to do it. I want Mike Flanagan to do everything. But you know what? I think that Mike Flanagan actually might be a little bit too hopeful for this. I need someone that is just really pessimistic to take the, the reins of this and really just punt it. Ari Aster. Let's get him. Let's get Ari Aster to do this and just really make us feel bad about our lives. Um, I think that he would do an incredible job with, with Revival, which sits at number five of our Stephen King best of the 2010s. Okay, and then as a complete palate cleanser, um, sitting at number four um, is Joyland. Now, Joyland is a novel that I liked when I first read it, but the more I think about it, especially after the reread um, for the purposes of the podcast, I, I think there's a lot of power in Joyland. And I think that in terms of, and so, like I said, at the beginning of this whole list, part of my rankings here are the execution of the author's intent, the potential, the fulfillment of the potential of these concepts, and the societal impact of the story, um, and my prognostication of future impact. I think, I think that if Darabont, if Flanagan, if someone else that I'm not thinking of takes Joyland, it is going to round out a trilogy of spiritual, beloved Stephen King classics that would include Stand By Me and The Shawshank Redemption, and I think that Joyland has the potential to be that. That level of loved works by Stephen King, by the non-horror community. Someone that just wants a good, feel-good movie. Um... I think that Joyland has that, uh, you know. So with St Stand By Me, based on the body, it has that boyhood experience, that childhood experience. The Shawshank Redemption has the hope that comes from adulthood when something bad has happened to you that you're able to overcome it. What Joyland has is that young love. And there's not a lot of adaptations about young love 
and Stephen King. And yet Stephen King has demonstrated that when it comes to love stories, he's really fucking good at it. Uh, though it's not in this decade. It was published in 1997. Um, Wizard in Glass is an incredible Stephen King story because of the love story. Um, and I'll get to another one later in this list. But when he does love, he can do it incredibly well. And the the, the, the love story in Joyland, though it's a doomed love story, it's not meant to last. It's potent. It's rich. It's done really, really well. Stephen King does coming of age uh, like no other. And this time period that he's operating with around that the, the college years... Um, it's also an age that we don't get to see him do uh, much of. So I, I, I think that this is him working with a time period, with a genre that he doesn't traffic in often. And it's also ripe for potential for an incredible adaptation. I just hope that someone um, that really has a, a love for this and an understanding of what they, they have on their hands here um, I, I, I hope that we're able to get an incredible adaptation out of it. But I think that I'm placing this here because um, within this decade, uh, it's it's a short novel, um, but it is one that has a lot of heart. And I think that there is potential here with an adaptation to really cement this. It could. It could go down as one of the greatest Stephen King um, stories of all time if it is attached to a, um, a strong uh, adaptation. And it has the potential to do that. So Joyland, uh, published in 2013. Number three. Ooh, here we go. Top three, guys. What's it going to be? Is it going to be an adaptation? Is it going to be a book? No, it's going to be an adaptation. And that, of course, is It Chapter One directed by Andy Muschietti, which was released in 2017. Now, I touched upon a lot of this already in my discussion of It Chapter 2, which came out this past year, but there was a lot of uh, resignation. There was a lot of dismissal of It when it was first announced. The uh, image of Pennywise in the sewer grate, one of the, the first images was ridiculed online. Um, but then... It's, then there was just a lot of turmoil when uh, um, the original director slash writer left. Um, so it, it didn't have a lot going for it. But then there was some confidence that started to be shown once the Entertainment Weekly started covering it. And I remember specifically, I remember where I was, um, reading the interview and breakdown of the costume choices for this version of Pennywise it really spoke to some sensibilities and to some understanding of what this creature was, how it was an approximation of what it thought clowns were. And so it really got to that alien quality that I said, ooh, okay. And the fact that it was taking place in like the late 80s, early 90s, which is something that I had wanted because as a recent uh, listener had just um, stated in, in a recent email about how... Prior to the movie, I talked about how this time period still spoke to the the sensibilities of the 1950s because this was a time period in which 
Steven Spielberg was operating and created Amblin Entertainment and the stories that took place in the present day of the 1980s were derived from his understanding of childhood, which was from the 50s. So to go backwards and take a time period and, and, and put it in the, 50, in the 80s, it was still speaking to the 50s and it was still truthful to the 50s. And that's ultimately what they wound up doing. Gave us so... In the history of Stephen King horror villains, we have Jack Nicholson. We have that you don't want to call her a villain, but we have Sissy Spacek. Um, we have the Plymouth Fury, Christine. You know, we have that image of uh, Barlow from the uh, Salem's Lot. We have Tim Curry, uh, Kathy Bates. Um, you know, we, we, we have these pop culture villains that are based on Stephen King works. So for Bill Skarsgård, who was unknown at that time, relatively, to step into the clown shoes that originally were, were filled by Tim Curry's Pennywise, who terrified a generation of children and inspired a generation of Stephen King fans. Uh, to have him come in, make this character his own, and in some ways transcend what Tim Curry did, it that cannot be overstated. Uh, and he created an instantly iconic character uh, and the interpretation was so gleeful and mad and manic and wild and physical and terrifying and funny and strange. The children' performances were 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 great. There was chemistry. There was just it, it was just good. You know, I have my faults with it. I think that it misses the mark on the the themes of what the book are. It creates its own themes around trauma. Um, which is fine, but I, I think that the magic of childhood is missing, but that's, uh, that's a critique for another day, which, you know, the critique you can find, um, on my original review of, uh, my two part review of it from 2017 and for all of my thoughts on it, um, which remains my highest rated, uh, podcast episodes. I have like four episodes dedicated to the the, the power of the novel and everything that Stephen King is doing. So obviously this is something that meant a lot to me and I was more inclined to be skeptical, but they, Andy Muschietti and company really won me over and filled me with um, belief in, in what they were going to do. And so the from the first poster, it got me excited. And then the teaser trailer. And then the, the, the trailer dropped, and it, it was a game changer. It was a game changer. It was on. And the race to the box office, people could not wait for that movie to come out. Um, and it was just unobjectively, uh, or just objectively, uh, a really well-done film. It was a strong execution of a creator's intent and if it was not for this film from start to finish i don't think that we would be talking about stephen king in this decade the way that we are 
talking about Stephen King. He is finishing this decade um, on such a strong note, and that has everything to do with it from 2017. Okay, number two. This is a cheat, but I'm still going with it. I'm going to own it. Dr. Sleep, the book, and Dr. Sleep, the movie. That's my number two. I did not like the book when it came out in 2013. I... I am a staunch supporter of this book for all the reasons that I feel a lot of people don't like it. And if you don't like it, that's fine. You know, I, I think that one thing that we need to get better at as we head into 2020 is to just like the things we like and let others like the things they like. And if we don't agree, that's fine. You know, like as I'm recording this, Rise of Skywalker has just come out. Um, I don't like the Rise of Skywalker. But you know what? I don't care if people do like The Rise of Skywalker. I wish I liked The Rise of Skywalker. I'm jealous that I, I don't like The Rise of Skywalker. I'm not going to litigate it, you know? You know, I'm not going to tell people why they're wrong for, uh, you know, liking something. I'm going to let them like it. And I'm going to sit over here and I'm just not going to like it. I'm going to like the things that I like. You know, similarly, I love The Last Jedi. I just watched it again. I think it's an incredible film. Some people don't like it, and that's okay. All right. So if people don't like Dr. Sleep because they wanted um, something that was more of a, an experience like The Shining, I get it. I get it because that's how I felt when I first read it. Um, but I, I, I came around because I understood what King was doing um, with it. And as I said before, it zigs with Shining Zags. And I'm, I like that. I admire that. But if someone does not, I get that too. Um. But for me, I'm going to spend my time talking about the things that I do like. Um, and I think that this is, again, a great execution of an author's intent. And so this is a novel that speaks and has a conversation with its predecessor. Um, calling it a sequel is not... I don't think it's the best way to describe it. I think that it's having a conversation. And similarly, Flanagan's adaptation, the way that he is able to have a conversation with both Dr. Sleep and Kubrick's The Shining and Stephen King's The Shining and somehow get all of them to work um, is a level of mastery, the likes of which we haven't quite seen in cinema before. Um, and I, it, 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 I think it's a little too fresh to really understand the level at which he is working. Um, I, as I stated earlier, I really hope that Dr. Sleep is the second in a long line of Stephen King adaptations that Flanagan is able to give to us. Because he, he gets the voice, he gets the character work, he gets the themes, he gets the pacing. He just understands Stephen King in a way as a storyteller. Because he operates so cleanly and so confidently in his own medium. And because his, similarity, his sensibilities are so similar... Um, he very naturally is able to recreate the sensation of reading a Stephen King novel um, through the audiovisual medium. Um, 
And I, I'm just so impressed with Dr. Sleep, his adaptation of Dr. Sleep, and I cannot wait for the director's cut to drop in a couple weeks. I cannot wait for that. Um, and I look forward to the, the legend of this movie and the legacy of this movie growing. I think it was released in the, a terrible time, um, but I think that it's going to have legs. I think that um, it's, you know, I think the fact that it was, you know, critically received, um, you know, is going to help build its legacy. And I think that uh, Mike Flanagan has a, a, a long career ahead of him. Okay. And that brings us to number one. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a book that I liked, but I didn't love the first time I read it. And the second time I read it, for the purpose of this podcast, I cried. I cry every now and then. I get teary-eyed thinking about it. He gets knocked a lot for his endings un, un unfairly, uh, the more that I think about it. Um, I think that endings in general are... Uh, there's, there's too much... Um, too much weight placed on endings. Um, but even if you were to criticize his endings, the ending to this particular novel is so beautiful and so sad and so lovely. And to know that it was also suggested by his son, um, I, I think also speaks to his son's ability to, to, to land an ending. Um, but all in all, this is a, a, a novel that is a, a, a secret love story that is hidden in the premise of time-traveling historical fiction. Um, but really, the heart of it is just about trying to be with the person you love when fate conspires against you. And that is 1122-63. Not only is this novel the best thing that he has written this decade it is one of the best things that he has ever written period uh it is it, the, the scenes that stick out are the scenes of him of the main character just living life in the late 50s early 60s in texas and being alive and being present and being in love with sadie um Jake and Sadie their love story is one for the ages and again like I said earlier when Stephen King decides to do a love story dude does it well um and because he is so good at placing us fully in the hearts and minds and eyes of a character at any given time we become in love with the past the way that Jake does we experience that bite of the cheeseburger and that pull from the milkshake. We understand the promise that the past is able to give to us. And I understand that right now we're living in a time where Make America Great Again harkens back to a time where it is a perceived notion of what America was when it really wasn't and that there was racism and it was awful, an awful time for so many people that were not white. And so this is a novel that traffics in a revision a revisionist look at the past in some ways i mean stephen king does you know shine a light on the inequity that that did occur during that time period so it's not this you know the past was so much better that that's not what this novel is but um i'm sure that there was 
there are elements of our technologically driven uh, future and present right now that are, you know, you know, we're, you know, it's been said to death that we've never been more connected, but we've never been more isolated. And, and you know, that wasn't the case, you know, back then. I, I, I'm not, I'm sorry. I, I'm sticking my foot in my mouth. I, I understand that. But the, 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 the depiction of the past and the, the fact that the past can be the future for somebody and a second chance um, and how it's all doomed. All, all of it is just done. And I keep saying this. It's just done so well. There is just, uh, I fell in love with this novel the second time around. Um, it is a hefty novel. And like I said, it is, it's, uh, it's a stealth love story that is um, hidden in the, the concept of what, what would you do if you could go back in time and stop uh, JFK's assassination? Um, and that's the, the, the plot, but that's not the story. Um, and that's definitely not the heart. Um, you know, and they danced. Um, is an incredible ending for for this novel um, that just it gets me it gets me I got I have goosebumps right now thinking about it so this is this is up there for Stephen King's best of list of all time it might be even in his top three um, if I were to to do this I, I don't even know what I what his top ten list was that like I said the, these things change so much but I think that um, when it's all said and done this is going to be viewed very favorably. Um, this is, this is something, uh, of an example of an author working at his, um, at his, uh, at his best, uh, fulfilling his potential, um, in terms of, uh, you know, just concept execution and just placing us in a world of believable characters that you just root for. It's a phenomenal novel, um, and, and rightfully so, sits at his number one best of the 2010s. So, um, if this was a list of my favorites, um, I would have probably included uh, The Bazaar of Bad Dreams. I had a really fun time with that collection. Um, Castle Rock Season 1 uh, would be on my list of favorites. Uh, the Queen, Episode 7, I believe, is uh, such a powerful episode of television um you know and and episode three i think um where the, the the correctional officer um you know just loses it uh at shawshank um th there are great moments in castle rock and i think that if i was listing my favorite works or just favorite stephen king um works uh castle rock would be up there uh the wind through the keyhole um, might be on my list of favorites um, simply because the opportunity to spend time with Roland and the Cotet for one last time um, out of sequence. Uh, it was lovely, and it's a wonderful coda. Um, and again, if you need to read this in the chronological order of publication and not in the events of the storyline, do not read this between episodes four and five of the Dark Tower saga as this speaks to thematically the conclusion of the series. It is a wonderful epilogue. I think it provides a very hopeful conclusion to the Dark Tower saga. Um, so for people that are reading it in the order of the events of the characters, I think that, it's, I think that, that is just not the right way. To, to read it uh 
Anyway, I would probably put that in my favorites. Um, you know, if my favorites, if I was doing my favorites list, I probably wouldn't have included it chapter two. Um, the ranking probably would be different. The outsider probably would be higher. Full dark, no stars. Uh, might not even be on it. Um, I might, I might have included elevation on there as I really, really liked elevation. Uh, so that that is, I just wanted to to take note of what the list might have looked like if I was doing a list of my favorite Stephen King works and Stephen King stuff of the 2010s. And then you know what, guys, I just wanted to list. Um, speaking of favorites, in no order, just ten favorite Stephen King moments from the 2010s. Um, and though I loathed the Hulu, um, adaptation of 11-22-63, the teaser, um, with the, the, that song, um, over again, um, playing, uh, th- that teaser for 11-22-63, I, I think was the best representation of what that story could be it got it it got it um it gave me goosebumps it made me tear up it it really sold the love story of it all um and then it it proceeded to fail at every every possible turn um but the the that teaser i watched that teaser much like the song itself over and over again um, I thought it was just absolutely beautiful and it filled me with a lot of promise that ultimately was crushed, but in that moment, it gave me a lot of hope. Um, number nine, um, interviewing Dustin Thomason, uh, the co-creator and showrunner of Castle Rock, um, was an incredible treat. And I also would say that interviewing, um, Matt Kellick from, uh, Cotet 19, uh, and uh, Josh Brucker as he attempted to get one for the road up and running. The, the interviews that I was able, I, you know, I, I'm not a big interviewer. Um, that's not where I traffic. That's not the purpose of this podcast, but I fully acknowledge that there are creatives out there um, that, that exist in the world of Stephen King that have been inspired by Stephen King and their stories are worth being told. So speaking to, to Matt and to Josh um, about how the, the inspirations for Stephen King has, has led them down the roads that they have gone on um, was a wonderful treat, you know, and I have a drawer full of uh, Katet 19 t-shirts. Um, so guys, if you Google Katet 19 t-shirts, Stephen King, um, it's going to bring you to a wonderful uh, website full of Stephen King apparel um, that really speaks to us, you know, super fans. They're stylish. They're incredibly comfortable. I haven't plugged them in a while, um, but they really are great. And Matt's a good dude. And um, I really enjoyed speaking with Josh. As he tried to get uh, One for the Road up and running, uh, he was very, both of them were very generous of their time. Um, and then, you know, speaking of generosity, uh, Dustin Thomason, who was in the middle of editing uh, the, the final episodes of Castle Rock season one, for him to spend about an hour and a half talking to me um, about all things Stephen King, giving me uh, very candid explanations about deep Stephen King uh, rationale, 
Alan Pangborn, um, you know, Polly Chalmers, you know, to, to get to that level. Um, it, it's something that I, every now and then it hits me that there is such generosity of time from someone that is, you know, really living the dream of being able to work in and traffic in the world of, of Stephen King property. Um, and that was just an incredible conversation that I, I really value. I really treasure. Um, I'm really, really grateful for, um, I don't know, uh, you know, if I'll have the opportunity to have uh, a conversation with, with Dustin again, um, uh, you know, I would love to see, you know, what he has in store for future installments of Castle Rock. Um, but he has given us some, he and his, 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 uh, you know, creative partner, um, Sam Shaw, they have given us some, you know, really game changing Stephen King adaptations that really helped reestablish Stephen King, uh, in our pop culture lexicon that I'm very, very grateful for. Um, and just like I said, being able to speak with, with Dustin, um, when I got my time, my, my, uh, time zone wrong, I got the time wrong. And, you know, despite the fact that I was, you know, I was late to the interview. He was still gracious with his time. I, uh, um, I just really, really appreciate that. And that was definitely a highlight, um, of Stephen King, of Stephen King related stuff in the 2010s for me. And then number eight is I spoke about Dr. Sleep, um, but just for the purposes of this podcast, for me being able to understand the intent behind Dr. Sleep um, and, and seeing that it, it spoke to The Shining and wasn't interested in being a, a recreation of The Shining. It was a, it was a wonderful eye-opening experience that gave me a, a giant smile as I read it. Um, and I'm very, very appreciative of the podcast for that uh, reappreciation and reexamination. Uh, speaking of uh, Dr. Sleep, the uh, Rose the Hat flying scene in Dr. Sleep, uh, you know, I up until that point, Mike Flanagan had not given us anything like that. So I, I was not aware that he was going to be able to do that kind of cosmic horror um, that Stephen King can do. Um, that we have seen before with Insomnia and It, uh, with the Dark Tower, and then, of course, the psychic battles that occur within Doctor Sleep. But for us, for him to give us that, the sound quality, the sound design that occurs, the visuals that occur, it was at, you know, sometimes when I'm watching a movie and I'm enjoying it in the movie theater, there will come a moment where I say to myself, I cannot wait to own this on Blu-ray. And when I think to myself that I know that it's a it's a movie that I'm I either currently love or know that I'm at the earliest stages of falling in love with it. And that happened to me during that scene. Um, I was just so impressed. It was awe inspiring. It took my breath away um, for so many reasons. And it, it just it, it just showed an interpretation of the text that I never would have thought of. Um, and it showed a director, director flexing muscles that he otherwise hadn't, we didn't realize that he had. Um, it was just awesome. It's great. And when this movie comes out again, I can't wait to watch that scene over and over and over. Um, I, I spoke about this uh, already. 
Um, but the ending of 11-22-63 is so beautiful and heartbreaking. Um, you just really feel that you're there and you feel that you have lived a life of love and loss. Um, so I'm not going to talk about it any more than, than I have to, but it, it, it is incredibly potent. Number five is... Um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a more personal one for me. Uh, and that was seeing it in the drive-thru uh, with my wife. Uh, it was a really nice date. It was just a really nice date movie. Uh, it was a perfect night um, in the fall. You know, as I, you know, basically my, my review of it was a two-part review. Um, the first episode, I, I discussed at length the, the drive-in movie experience. Um, and partially I did that because I, I wanted to just get all of my thoughts out about the memories of that night. Um, so I would always have them. So that was very selfish of me. Um, but I, I just want to be able to go back to that night, uh, because I was watching a really cool movie with a really cool woman that I love very much um, in a really cool way. And um, it was just all the things that I am grateful for in my life and that I love in my life just colliding and just working and, and working in conjunction with each other uh, that I'm just I'm really, really grateful for. Um, so to just watch this movie on the big screen outside as the full moon rose behind it um, with with the love of my life, that was uh, very special to me. Um, number four, uh, spoiler alert for Gerald's Game, the Mike Flanagan movie, but when Bruce Greenwood uh, says, all things serve the beam, I... It blew my mind to have a Dark Tower reference that was more faithful to the Dark Tower than the Dark Tower movie that came out that same year. Uh, and it's just showed again that he's operating at a whole completely different level of Stephen King fandom. Um, you know, I, and I, nothing against, you know, I mean, Darabont is also operating there because he gave us the Dark Tower painting um, in the mist. So, but, but, but to hear that uttered, to hear that phrase uttered so so stealthily and then he would continue doing that with uh with dr sleep as well but that that was something that i just absolutely absolutely loved another one um is uh just the return of stephen king uh this decade um i i believe began with stephen king sort of being on the outs of pop culture he was replaced at this point by jk rowling uh, and George R. R. Martin, you know, wound up taking center stage. But somewhere after the events of, um, I know for sure, after uh, 2014, um, Stephen King reclaimed his title. Um, and he, he came back into the public spotlight in a really big way. And I'm very grateful for that, that I am operating this podcast from a place where the subject of the podcast is in the spotlight and that I'm not, uh, you know, talking about someone whose who's heyday um, is in the past. So I was really happy to see Stephen King once again take center stage. Um, number two, um, 
you know, and again, this is in no particular order. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> reading Joyland in my kayak uh, in the late morning of my wedding day is something that I will always treasure. Uh, I woke up that morning, you know, my wife, who was my still my fiance at the time, had a busy day of getting ready and getting everything that she needed to do uh, at the venue and the hotel. So uh, we didn't really see each other. I got up that morning, went for a, a six mile run. Um, then I threw the kayak on the roof and drove to a, a spot, threw the kayak in the water, paddled around and just relaxed and I read. Then I um, got out and then I went to the gym. It was an incredibly active day <laughs> uh, and then got ready. And I just, I had so much energy because it was all nervous energy. And then I got in the car and I drove and I got married and it was an incredible day and Stephen King was a part of it, you know, you know, having that moment to myself out on the lake under a beautiful summer sun reading a beautiful book uh, is something that I will always treasure and it happened this decade but my favorite uh, Stephen King related uh, thing that happened this year was launching and running the thing that you're listening to right now uh, in August of 2014 when I dropped the first episode um, I embarked on a, uh, a hobby that still blows my mind to this day. And it ran concurrent with the, the, the like I said, the, the resurrection of Stephen King. I'm not taking credit by any means for the, the, the return of Stephen King to pop culture significance. Um, but I, I, I think that I did sense that a change was coming and... You know, when I when I started this podcast, there weren't there weren't a lot of Stephen King podcasts out there, and I'm glad to say that there are a lot now, as there should be, um, because he's someone that sh requires a lot of people to share their thoughts on, and because he is someone that does traffic in the the belief of community and cotet, the fact that there is a cotet of us out there that that is sharing our love. And our thoughts on what he has been able to give us, that that is, that is something special. And for me to have recorded over 200-something episodes over these last five years, um, it, it's, it's wild. It's wild to me. So when I, you know, I just shared my, my thoughts on uh, reading Joyland um, on my wedding day. So I, you know, I... I wasn't married when I started the Stephen King cast, but the accomplishments that I had um, during the Stephen King cast, uh, I've had some really um, professional successes that I am grateful for. Um, you can chart. <laughs> uh, if you go back and listen, you can sort of chart the... Um, my uh, relationship with fatherhood um, as I sort of tease to all of you 
where my life is going to be going to my announcement that my wife was pregnant to my announcement that you know my daughter was born and my return to the podcast after that and uh, how much that means to me I became the best version of myself um, after this podcast I became a published author because of this podcast um, and I have been able to interact with people all over the world because of this podcast and I have uh, been able to know that I, in some way, have made a difference in the lives of other people. And I try not to make this be about me, even though I know that I read iTunes reviews and I read emails, um, and many of the emails are just very complimentary. So I, I know that there is definitely, um, you know, patting my own back on a number of occasions, but I, I try not to have it be about me. Um, and as I think that you can tell, I'm having difficulty getting these words out because I can speak at length about Stephen King, but I don't like congratulating myself. But I do want to express that the fact that I have been able to make a positive difference in the lives of people, whether it be just sharing your time and your space and making a commute to work um, all the more palatable or helping you come down from a crappy day at work um, or just being in your life um, through, you know, just the, the, the small little moments of life or the uh, listening to my podcast as you hold your child in your hands um, for the first time. So there's just moments that I am strangely a part of that I never would have been if it weren't for this podcast, which leads me to uh, an email from Jen. So Jen, uh, I'm sure that you're listening to this, uh, and this is not the first time I have read a an email from you on air, um, but I felt that um, I should close with the most recent email that you sent me. So guys... As I've said before in this podcast, I can't do it without you. So please, if you have any thoughts on Stephen King or your life or how Stephen King has impacted your life, um, please feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Uh, Jen, who operates uh, the blog horrorvirgin.com, um, who I said has, has written in before and has been a, um, uh, a very, very kind uh, supporter of this show, um, wrote in. Because I, I sent out, you know, if anyone wants to share their thoughts for the, the, the decade end um, of, of this podcast reexamination, uh, Jen wrote in um, and, and she wrote that her favorite publications are, uh, so full disclosure, she says she has not finished the Institute yet, but she's loving it so far. So number five, Bizarre of Bad Dreams. The Little Greed God of Agony is probably my favorite. I don't think this is my favorite collection, but it's the first time that I've really liked every story. Number four is Elevation. I read this at the end of 2018, and its raw positivity helped pull me out of a dark period. I love how the ending parallels pop art and kind of Joyland. Number three is Full Dark No Stars, Big Driver and a Good Marriage in particular. 112263, she writes, this is in my top five of all time. 
The ending is fantastic and always makes me cry. And number one is Dr. Sleep. I love this book and your episode on it is one of my favorites. This should come this should probably be my number two, but I'm ranking it higher because of how much it means to me personally. I completely agree that's a love letter to AA, and I wrote an essay about it, along with The Shining and Flanagan's adaptation, how it's impacted my own struggle with addiction. I hate to shamelessly plug myself, but I've linked it here. Um, and so you can find this at um, horrorvirgin.com backslash face, face hyphen everything hyphen and hyphen recover. Um, but what you should do is just head on over to the horrorvirgin.com. And then she writes, uh, for her, her favorite adaptations, number three, it chapter one. While I still have a few issues with Bev and Mike's storylines, I absolutely loved this adaptation. They nailed the casting and understood that the story is really about friendship and Bill Skarsgård killed it against all odds. Number two is Dr. Sleep. This adaptation helped me make peace with some long-standing issues that I've had with Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. Mike Flanagan is amazing, and I want him to adapt King's entire catalog, starting with Mrs. Todd's shortcut, then Dumakey's smiley face. Number one, Gerald's Game. This movie means so much to me personally, and Flanagan perfectly adapted the spirit of an unfilmable book. I know most don't like the ending, but I do. The film opened up some old wounds, and I appreciated the healing words and closure. Watching it felt like therapy. Special mentions. Castle Rock. I have not seen the second season yet, but seasons one, The Queen, is one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking pieces of art I've ever seen. I love its depiction of dementia and the lasting effects of surviving an abusive marriage. Extra special mention. And I write this with... Uh, uh, a little bit of a, a sheen in my eye. The Stephen King cast is my number one best podcast of the decade. In 2014, I decided to try out this new podcast thing and searched for Stephen King on the iTunes app. I started with your Carrie episode and have been hooked ever since, not just on your show, but on podcasts in general. You introduced me to a whole new way to enjoy media, and I now have a podcast of my own. Your analysis has deepened my appreciation for some of my favorite books, and your passion for writing has inspired me to write as well. I'm about to finish my chronological reread of King's work, and you've been with me through every book, novella, and short story. I always listen to your episode before crossing a book off my list. The first time I wrote anything not for school or for work was when writing into your show. I've since found that I love to write about horror and now have my own blog. I, write, I wrote an essay about how horror has helped me heal, specifically mentioning what it meant to me to have you read my letter about Gerald's game. I hate to post another link, but I just want you to know the impact that you have had on my life. And the link is to, again, horrorvirgin.com backslash me uh, dash two. So the Me Too movement, think of that. Uh, your work has helped me find my voice, and I will be forever grateful to you and the Stephen King cast. Thank you, Sai, Jen. So I'm not going to tell Jen's story for her. Um, it's not my place. But you can uh, read about it um, in, in her blog um, and, and what Stephen King has been able to, to do to, to help her um, through some serious trauma in her life. Um, I, I think that Jen is uh, being overly kind with her words. Um, but any any strength that that uh, she found came from it came from within yourself, Jen. 
Um, I can't take the credit for that. Um, but I really thank you for the kind words and the support. Um, and so for, for anyone out there that uh, is dealing with anything, please know that you are not alone, um, that you are a part of something larger than yourself and your pain. You are a part of a larger quartet, though we might not have met and you might not have met the others that share this quartet, you are not alone. And as Jen shows, you can overcome this and you can um, beat back the trauma and take ownership of it. You know, personally speaking, I'm not someone that has had to deal with much trauma um, in my life, so I, I can't speak about that. Um, but I, I can say that um, there is hope, um, even though the world that we're living in doesn't always show it. Um, if anything, uh, just really think about the themes that the thing that unites us, if you're listening to this, um, that's Stephen King. You know, he writes of horror and he writes of the most horrible things uh, and the, the most horrible challenges that, that you would ever face. Um, but his characters are always, always able to overcome it when they rely on the strength of, of those around them. So don't be alone. Don't be by yourself because you're not. Um, and if you need to just write in to Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com, do it. Um, and if you know you need to talk to someone, there's no shame in talking to a therapist. Um, no shame at all. Do what you got to do to live your best life. Um, so that got heavy um, here at the end, but um, you know that's you know that's life. Life can be heavy. Um, and so, guys, uh, I thank you for everything uh every listen every download every recommendation every itunes review every moment that you have spent listening to my stupid voice and my stupid thoughts um and the time that i have spent um you know sharing my thoughts on stephen king um i really appreciate it i i, I really really do um you know, wherever you are listening, whether it's in the Northeast, whether it's in the South, whether it's on the West Coast, um, whether it's Middle America, whether it's um, somewhere else, um, you know, in, in uh, you know, the uh, North, uh, you know, North America or South America or on a continent across the seas um, in another country. Um, just thank you thank you for taking the time uh, to listen and to invite me um, into your world much in the way uh, <laughs> you know, the characters invited uh, the vampires into their homes in Salem's Lot so guys thank you uh, this has been an incredible decade for all fans of Stephen King and uh, for Stephen King himself and I'm really looking forward to what uh, the, the next decade has in store for us and you'd better be sure that I will be here to chronicle it here at the Stephen King cast so guys um, may you have long days and pleasant nights and I'll see you here next decade 
where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Oh